We awake? We here? We good? Raring to go? All right. How many things do you do every day? I mean, there, there's some things that we all do basically every day because we have to, you know, stay alive, right? We have to eat, we have to go to the bathroom, we have to do all those things. So we do those things every day. There's some other things that, you know, you have to brush your teeth, you have to shower, you don't have to do it every day. But if you don't do it every day, then somebody's going to notice, right? But aside from those things, what do you do every day? Think about it. It's hard to do something every day, right? Unless it's one of those like sort of quasi-addictive things like check Facebook or something like that. It's really hard, Wendy just gave me a side eye, she doesn't own a computer. It's really hard to intentionally do something every single day. There's a, um, there's a language learning app. I have it on my phone. It's called Duolingo. I don't know if anyone's ever heard of it. it. It's free, and it's got all kinds of languages that you can learn. And you can't quite learn an entire language, but it can, it can give you a good base to go on uh, you know, and, and get fluent someday. And, that, and that's my hope. Because I've, I've been using this language app every single day, and it tracks, and it tells you. It's like, oh, you have a streak of this many days. And when you have something like that tracking what you do and how often you do it, like you, you see how difficult it really can be to do something every single day. To have that discipline to say, I'm going to do this. Whether I have a, a difficult day, whether I have an easy day, whether I have a busy day that's full of things, whether I don't, whether I have a weird day so I get out of my routines and my rhythms, I'm going to do this thing anyway. It's difficult to do something consistently. But I think you'll find that when you do something every day, and I mean every single day, it starts to affect your mind, it starts to affect your life in perhaps positive, in perhaps negative ways. Right? I don't know how many of you have a yard with grass, probably all of you. I live in an apartment, so I don't. But whenever like, there's, a, there's a path along the grass that you walk that's not paved or anything. Say you have like a shed in the back of the yard, and you go back and forth to that shed multiple times. What happens? There's a path there, right? You don't, like, you don't uh, pave it or anything. You don't put stones down. There's just a path there. All you do is just walk there. If you do that once a day, you're going to have a nice trod dirt path with barely any effort put into it at all, except for the fact that you've walked it every single day. It works the same way in our minds and in our lives. If you work on a language every day, or if you do as Stan always tells me, and you play guitar every single day for five minutes, it starts to affect you, right? You pick it up. You have well-worn paths in your mind. If you listen to the same political commentator every day, you have the same paths worn in your mind. Their anxieties, their angers start to affect your life. If you read Scripture every day, that simple taking five minutes, ten minutes every day, it starts to wear a path in your mind and in your heart. It starts to change who you are. 
I say all that not because I'm preaching on daily habits, but because our text of Scripture this morning is something that an ancient Jewish person or even a modern Orthodox observant Jewish person would have said every single day. This morning, our text is the great commandment. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. This was a prayer at the heart of Jewish worship. This is a command. This is a statement right at the very core of the ancient Jewish faith. Little Jewish boys and girls would say this every night, just like we would say prayers before we go to bed, sort of like how we confess the Apostles' Creed every single week. They would say this every single day. They would read, they would read these two verses, and they would add some other verses, but the core of it is these two verses. So in the New Testament, when a teacher of the law comes to Jesus and he says, Master, what's the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus wastes no time in giving the correct answer. He points back to this. I think it's fair to say, and this is, you know, kind of wishful thinking, it's a hypothetical, so it doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter whether this is true or not, but I think if we were going to have only two verses in the entire Old Testament, if we were going to whittle it down to two verses, two sentences, it would be this one. This is at the core of what the Old Testament teaches. And a Jewish person, they would say this over and over and over until the truths contained in this statement and in this command start to affect their lives and teach them truly what it means to follow and love God. Those two verses are these. Deuteronomy 6 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Just those two verses. These are so central to the ancient Jewish faith that I actually want to take two weeks to go through this, if that's okay. So this week we're going to focus just on verse 4, Deuteronomy 6, 4. Just those, just those six words in Hebrew. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We're going to talk about that today. Next week we're going to get to the command part of it. Loving God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. It's worth spending two weeks on because this is so core and so central to what the Bible teaches. Perhaps you've, you've, excuse me, perhaps you have heard the word uh, said of this text before that it's called the Shema. Has anyone heard that? Does anyone, is anyone familiar with that? We have one. Thank you, Joanne. This is called the Shema. And if you don't know what that word means, it's taken from the first Hebrew word that simply means hear. Listen up, O Israel. I've titled this sermon series, Listen and Live. And that's taken from Deuteronomy 4.1, right? Listen to these commands, obey them, do them so that you can live in the land. The word for listen and the word hear, they're the same word. It means listen up. Listen to what you're about to hear. And I think, I think we know this. I think, I think we kind of get this automatically, But the word listen there, the word hear, doesn't mean to simply have, you know, sound waves bounce off your ears, right? It doesn't mean hear this and then just go your own way. 
It doesn't even mean listen and understand. It doesn't mean comprehend this, O Israel. Right, when I'm having a discussion with my wife and we disagree about something, right, sometimes I will say, I hear you. And I say that intentionally because I'm, I'm not saying that I agree with her. Right? I'm just trying to understand what she's saying, so I say, I hear you. That's not what this word means. This word hear, this word listen, it's talking about our hearts. Because if we truly listen, if we truly understand what God is teaching us here, it will affect our lives. I used this illustration before, and it's very out of season, but I think it's a good illustration. Like, if, if you're watching the weather and they say a snowstorm is coming, I used this illustration in February, and I just want to use the same one, but it's June. And anyway, if, if you watch the weather and they say a snowstorm is coming, they say it's going to be one of the greatest we've ever seen. We're going to get two feet of snow. You know, school's going to be closed for a few days. You've got to prepare. If I look in my cupboards and I see that there's not much food there, if I know that there's not much gas in my car, if I had a generator and, you know, had one, then I would, and I checked it and I knew there wasn't much gas in it, I would go, because of that weather report, because I hear it, because I understand it, I would go and it would affect my actions. I would go fill up, you know, the generator with gas, I'd fill up my car with gas, I'd buy a few days worth of food, because it's not enough to just hear the information about what's going to happen. If we truly hear it and truly understand it and truly believe it, it affects our heart. It's the difference between head knowledge and heart knowledge, between knowing something and having something affect our lives. So when Israel's being addressed here, when they hear, hear, O Israel, it's a call. It's a call. As they recite this every day, multiple times a day. It's a call to let the truths contained in this statement change their lives. This verse, as I said, is, is uh, six words in Hebrew, and we're just going to focus on those, on those six words this morning. There's hear, O Israel. That's the first two words. And then there's just a simple, short statement. The Lord is our God, that's two words. And then the Lord is one. And I want to talk for a minute about what, what the word the Lord means. If you've, if you've been reading your Bible for a while, you might, you might know this, but the Hebrew word behind the Lord is not the Lord. It's another word. It's the name of God. It's the name Yahweh. Did you guys know that God has a name? Right? Like I introduce myself as Pastor Andrew most of the time. And a number of you, if you, you know, refer to me or address me, you call me pastor, and that's fine. And you call me Pastor Andrew, and that's fine. Or you call me Andrew, and that's also fine. But you can, like, there's, there's those two names that I have. Pastor is sort of like the word God. Right? God is not God's name. We can call him God because he is our God. But calling God Yahweh is like calling me Andrew. It is God's name. This goes all the way back to Exodus chapter 3, right? When the book of Exodus opens, the nation of Israel is stuck in slavery in Egypt, right? They, they had heard of God. They were familiar with all of the Egyptian gods, absolutely. 
and they had heard that their ancestors kind of ways back, they had a relationship with a God, but they just knew him as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was maybe more legendary than anything. He was their God, and then the Egyptians had their God, and they knew that they were stuck in slavery unless something happened. But God, Yahweh, shows up to Moses in a burning bush. It's one of the most incredible stories in the Bible. Moses, like there's a sheep, he's, he's, he's a shepherd, and that's a whole different story. But he, like a sheep wanders up on Mount Sinai, and he goes up after it, and he sees a bush that's on fire. But it's still got green leaves that haven't wilted away, that haven't withered. It's on fire, but it's not being burned up. And then, to make it even creepier, Imagine being Moses in that situation. Seriously, you see this bush. And then a voice speaks to you out of the fire and says, Go, I'm going to use you to let my people go out of Egypt. And Moses and God, have a, they have a back and forth conversation, and we're not going to talk about all of that today. But Moses says this. This is Exodus 3.13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Now remember, Israel is in Egypt. They are familiar with all of the Egyptian gods. They have Osiris and Ra and all of these other names that I, that I forget. But they say, what, what's your God's name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. Hear that. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Yahweh is God's name. So whenever you read your Bible in the Old Testament and you see the translated the Lord, if it's in all caps, maybe in lowercase, feel free to flip through your Bible and check it out in the Old Testament. But if the word Lord is there in all caps, the word behind that is Yahweh. And the reason we translate that Lord instead of just translating it over Yahweh, it's an ancient tradition that goes back to a, a variety or an interpretation of the third commandment, right? Not taking God's name in vain where people wouldn't want to even say the name of God. If an Orthodox Jewish person were reading this text in Hebrew, they wouldn't say Yahweh. They would say Adonai. They would bow their head. An Orthodox Jewish person won't even say the name Adonai, which means Lord, when they're, when they're just in ordinary conversation. They'll say Hashem, which just means the name. But that's the reason that, that it's translated the Lord. But anytime you see the Lord, and it's in all caps in your Bible, that is the name of God. That is Yahweh. The word Yahweh also sometimes gets translated as Jehovah, which you're probably more familiar with and why it's translated. That's a whole different story that I'll tell you later if you want to hear, but that would be too far in the weeds for this morning. But the word Yahweh, or the name Yahweh, the name Jehovah, the name translated the Lord in the Bible is all the same name. Why am I spending so much time on this? In the Bible, in ancient culture, someone's name was far more than what you called them. Their name had to do with their character. Their name had to do with who they are. 
That's why so many times in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, when someone has a conversion, their name gets changed, right? When God calls Peter, his name's not Peter. His name is Simon. And he says, no, we're not going to call you Simon anymore. You're going to be a rock. So I'm going to call you Peter, which means rock. Someone's name is an insight into their character, right? Jacob in the Old Testament, his name means trickster. And in the text, guess what? He's kind of a trickster. So when you see someone's name, when you see what it means, it gives you insight into their character. So what does Yahweh mean? When God appeared to Moses in the fire, right, there's a burning bush. And Moses says, what is your name? God responds, I am who I am. Tell them Yahweh has sent you to them. The word Yahweh, without getting too much into Hebrew, simply means he is. God says, I am who I am. And that would have sounded like Echia, Asher Echia. Echia and Yahweh. Those are kind of two variations on the same verb. God's name simply means that he is. And if I can go a little bit more into the weeds, and I think this will be helpful for us, so try to follow. But if I'm, if I'm talking in English, and I want to talk about something that happened in the past, I would say, I preached or I was preaching, right? There's past action, and there's one simple action, and then there's an ongoing action. And if you hated English in high school, I'm so sorry, but bear with me. I could say right now, I could say, I preach or I am preaching, or I could talk about in the future, I will preach or I will be preaching, Right? There's a type of action, it can either be ongoing or simple, right? and it can happen in the past, present, or the future. In Hebrew, they don't really have that idea of past, present, and future. You kind of have to guess it based on context. What they do have is the idea of simple action versus ongoing action. So when God says, I am, he doesn't mean I am right now at the expense of I was and I will be. It just means he is. In the New Testament in Revelation, what we read earlier was he is the one who was, the one who is, the one who is to come. He is timeless. He just is. And when we're talking about the name of God, when we're talking about who he is at his very core, Right? We're not talking about things that he's done. We're not talking about anything else about him, anything about his character. He just is. To help us a little bit more with, with what that name means, I love the story in the book of John when the Pharisees come to Jesus and they're arguing with him about some point of the law that they're wrong about and Jesus is right about. But Jesus invokes the name of Yahweh himself. They were talking about Abraham. So Jesus says, before Abraham was, what does he say? Does he say, I was? No. He says, I am. Jesus, in time, in human history, just says, I am before Abraham. Think about that. Isn't that mind-blowing? Right? We are, we are mortal human beings who exist in time. There was a point where I did not exist. There is a point where I will die. There is a point where people will come into existence in the future. There is no point in which God came into existence. He just is. It's almost as if he holds time in his hands. He can see all of it all at once. 
He just is. You see, I have needs, right? If I don't eat for a few days, I'm going to get hungry, and if I don't eat for who knows how long, I'm going to die eventually. If I don't breathe for a few minutes, I'm going to die. God doesn't need anything. He just is. He is the only being who is infinite. He is the only being who never had a beginning. He is the only being who just is. So when God is telling Moses about who his name is, what his name is, what his character is, he just says, I am. I just exist. I was the one who was. I am the one who is. I am the one who is to come. Yahweh simply means he is. God is the one who exists apart from anything else. He is the creator, the one from whom all things came. He spoke all things into existence. Everything else comes from him. He comes from nothing. He just is. So in this statement, in this, in this creed, that a Jewish person would confess every day, to let it wear into their hearts, to wear a well-worn path. They would say every day, Yahweh. They would know that their God simply is. What about the rest of, the, the rest of that verse? Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. What does it mean that Yahweh is one? There's actually kind of a debate about this, and I think all of the debates have, have legitimate points, but I, I settled on, on this one aspect. Yahweh is unique. There is none like him at all. Remember, remember the story of Israel, right? Remember where we are in the book of Deuteronomy. The nation of Israel, they were enslaved in Egypt, Right? They, they probably knew of the God of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They, they had heard stories about this God, and they were familiar with all of the Egyptian gods who seemed so powerful and so real in their oppression. Right? But Yahweh shows up, and what does he do? See, it, it's helpful for us to understand that in, in ancient conception of the realm of the gods, right, each god had their own limited space in which they could act, right? A god of a nation would have power in that nation, but not anywhere else, right? In the book of Jonah, remember the story of Jonah, when God tells Jonah to do something, what does Jonah do? He flees from God. He runs away from God because he thinks, and he's so wrong, but he thinks that if he can get out of the nation of Israel, if he can go across the ocean to another place, God can't reach him there. But the book of Jonah tells us that even at the bottom of the sea, right, even at the bottom of this place that's equated with death, the place where they thought no gods could go, God found him. The ancient Israelite in Egypt, they would have thought a similar thing. Yeah, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's a God maybe up in Canaan. He was a God of our fathers. But he doesn't have any real power down in Egypt. But God shows up and he proves them wrong. One by one, Yahweh sends plagues on Egypt. He turns the Nile, right, this river that was viewed as divine, this source of life for the ancient Egyptians, he turns it into blood, 
Yahweh destroys crops. He shows that their gods of fertility are absolutely nothing compared with him. Yahweh kills the firstborn of those who refuse to paint their doors with the blood of a lamb. Yahweh showed one by one with all of the plagues of Egypt that he is greater than every single one of their gods. He brings Israel out of Egypt, right? With a strong arm, with a mighty hand, he flexes his muscles. He brings them out through the Red Sea, this place of death. They're fleeing the armies of death. He brings them through death to escape death, and he brings them to Mount Sinai so that he can have a relationship with them. Exodus 15 is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. I'm not going to read the entire thing today. I'd encourage you to go home and read it uh, if if you get the chance. But after they had escaped Egypt, after they had crossed through the Red Sea, there's a gigantic poem that they sing about how great their God is compared with all of the other gods. And this is a line from it, Exodus 15, 11. Who is like you, O Yahweh, among the gods? Who is like you, O Yahweh, among the gods? When we imagine all of these deities, whether they're fake, whether they're demonic powers, whatever they are, when we compare our God with all of them, none of them can stand up to him. He is greater than every single last one of them. As we learned in the book of Ephesians, every knee will bow as Christ is raised up over them all. Deuteronomy 10, 17, for Yahweh your God, and here I'm kind of translating the word Lord there into into Yahweh. Whenever you see the word Lord and it's in all caps, it's Yahweh. For Yahweh your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. Yahweh is greater than than any single other deity that exists. Any god we can imagine, any demonic power that exists, Yahweh is greater than all of them. And by bringing Israel out of Egypt, he proved it. So when when a Jewish person would say this, when they would pray this prayer, when they would recite this every single morning, every single night, when they would allow it to, to tread the path in their minds, teaching them slowly what is truth, what is good. They would say that, Yahweh our God is one. And they knew that God is above all things. Because Yahweh is unique, he alone is worthy of Israel's worship. That's where we get the first commandment from, right? In in the list of Ten Commandments, the first commandment is, have no other gods before me. And Israel would have, again, come out of a culture from Egypt where they were used to having multiple gods, right? You would go worship this god for this thing, this god for this other thing, right? If you needed this special thing over here, you got to go way down the road to that god at that temple and, and, you know, meet him there. No, 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 no. It's not going to be like that in Israel, Worship Yahweh alone, because he alone is above all of these other gods. Don't have any other gods. Don't bring anything else into your worship, right? Don't, don't do like the Canaanites did and sort of have like, you know, your altar to the main god and then you have like your side god over here. Don't, don't do any of that stuff, because Yahweh alone 
is worthy of worship. Deuteronomy 6.14, don't go after other gods. This is Deuteronomy 4, verses 32 through 35 and verse 39. And again, this goes back to Moses when he heard God's voice speaking out of the fire. This goes back to Mount Sinai when they saw right, the cloud descend on, on the mountain, when they, when they saw it you know, quaking and thundering and it was big and it was terrifying and a voice spoke to them out of it. Deuteronomy 4 says this, Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the fire as you have heard? and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the middle of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, by great deeds of terror, all of which Yahweh your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? To you it was shown that you might know that Yahweh is God. There is no other God besides him. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that Yahweh is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Right? Contrary to what Jonah thought, he didn't think that God was the God in the earth beneath, underneath the water. But God is there. There is no other. So every day, they confessed this creed. Yahweh is one. They were saying that their God was above all of the other gods. He is the God who just is. There was never a time when he came into existence. He just is. He created all things. He is above all things. He is all-powerful. He needs nothing. He alone is above all of the other gods. And he alone is worthy of worship. But as they confessed this, they also said something else. They said, Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is our God. This God who is above all things. This God who needs nothing. Right? He does not need to be in a relationship with us. He has relationship with himself inside the Trinity. He did not need to rescue Israel from out of Egypt. He didn't need any of that. But he did. He came down. He heard the cries of the Israelites crying out because of their oppression. He brought them out to Mount Sinai. And what does he say to them? I will be your God. And you will be my people. This all. This God who is above all was their God. He was great and above all, but he was personal. They could reach out to him. They could, you know, they, they went to Mount Sinai and they, they saw the presence of God on the mountain. And on the mountain, God gives them instructions for a tabernacle, right? That's not just a place to worship. That's not just a place to go and imagine God. That's a place to bring Mount Sinai around with them. You know, when they came out into the, into the wilderness, God dwelled on Mount Sinai, but when they built this tabernacle for him, they built this holy place, that was a place where they could go and worship him. And throughout, you know, in the book of Leviticus and in the book of Numbers, God gives them instructions for how they can go in and have a relationship with this God who is above all. They could bring him around with them because Yahweh was their God. 
What does this mean for us? We are the people of God today. We are the church. We are the people of God's inheritance. We are the people who worship God in his sanctuary when we come to gather as a church on Sunday mornings. We are the people of God and just as, just as the ancient Israelites would have looked back to the Exodus, right, when God showed his great power over all of those gods of Egypt, he showed one by one that he was greater than all of them. So we as Christians look back to the cross. What does the book of Colossians say in chapter 2? It says that the powers and the authorities, right, all of these other, these other beings that exist, he nailed them to the cross, putting them to open shame. He defeated every power of sin, every power of death, every demonic entity. All of them were defeated at the cross. He showed that he was greater than each and every one of them when he died and when he rose again from the dead. So when we look back to the cross, when we look back to what God has done for us, we see that our God is the God above all things, And he came down in order to defeat all of them so that we can dwell with him. The book of Revelation, Revelation 21, it ends with a statement. It doesn't end with a statement, but this this is right at the end. When we're finally in that time where God comes back, where God renews his world, when we live in perfect fellowship with God, he says that we will be his people, and he will be our God. Just like he promised to Abraham when he was making a people, just as he promised to the nation of Israel when he brought them out of Egypt and made a relationship with them at Mount Sinai, God will be our God, and we will be his people. This God who is, who is above all, we can also claim that he is our God. You know, we can be tempted to make God into our own image. That, that's, our, that's our tendency as human beings, right? We have a way that we want God to be, and we, we imagine him in that way, right? We tend to imagine that God looks at our sins and says, yeah, those are all pretty excusable things. I understand why you're proud about that thing. I understand that you're kind of greedy. I understand all of those things. And he looks at the sins that we hate, that we don't struggle with, right? We look at all the people over there and say, oh, I can't believe what that group of people is doing over there. Can you believe what they're talking about, what they're doing? Can you believe X, Y, and Z? And we imagine, right? This is our tendency. We imagine that God winks at our own sin. Says, oh, it's, it's not really that big of a deal. I understand why you're like that. But oh, man, those people over there, they're going to get it at the final day. We like to imagine God in our own image, a God who doesn't demand that we come and follow him with everything, that we come and pick up our cross, that we come and die. We like to imagine that God doesn't demand that we repent of our sins, name them every day, say these these are my sinful things and I commit them to God and I repent of them. We imagine a God who's just kind of okay with the way that we live our lives, But friends, God is not the God that we imagine him to be. 
God is the God who is who he revealed himself to be. The God that we imagine is not God. The God who is, is God. But here's the thing. The God that we imagine is worse than the God who is. The God that we imagine in our minds, the God that we are tempted to worship, right, who winks at our sin, who has all of our, all of our preferences, all of our pet peeves really bother him too, the God that we imagine him to be can't measure up to just the God who is, to the God who God has revealed himself to be. Because at the end of the day, we know that if God were going to allow our sins, the world would be a worse place. Right? The fact that we don't really want to name our sins, the fact that we don't really want to repent of them, if God were to just set those aside like we want him to, the world wouldn't be as good as it could be. We're going to imagine a God who has all of our preferences, who supports all of our political beliefs, who says everything that we want him to hear, that God's not going to measure up because God created this world. He knows how this world is supposed to work. And in his word, he has revealed the right way to experience blessing in that world. The God who is, is the God who shows us how he wants us to live. He shows us that he wants us to come, repent of our sins, and continually follow him every day, to make that decision every day, to repent of our sins, to pick up our cross and follow him. That is the God who is. And the good news is that he is the God who is our God. God did not just give us this command and say, do all these things. Not only does he show us the ways in which we don't measure up, but he is the God who comes down to forgive us of our sins, to place us in Christ, to place us in Christ's people so that we can live in the way that we are called to live and are called to be. Yahweh is the God who is. He needs nothing. He just is. He is unique above all of the other gods. He is our God. He loved us so much that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish, will have eternal life. That God is better than any God that you can imagine for yourself. So I encourage you wholeheartedly, whether you've been walking with Christ for decades, whether you've been pushing that off, and refusing to repent in your own heart for just as long. Repent of your sins. Take up your cross. Come and follow Jesus, because he is the only way to life. Will you pray with me?